Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to When Diplomacy Fails' series on the Thirty Years' War. This is Episode 5. Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain and Grand Duke of Burgundy, was not the only individual to abdicate from his numerous titles in the year 1555. His sister Mary, the widower of the King of Hungary and the regent of the Burgundian Netherlands region since the early 1500s, had also determined upon her brother's abdication to resign her position too. She gave the following justification for her decision, anticipating the very difficult relationship which Mary's nephew Philip, and Charles' son Philip, the King of Spain, was soon to endure with the Burgundian Netherlands. Mary wrote to her brother Charles that, All states, under the obedience of a prince, should desire above all that he should be most wise and virtuous. Yet I would say that a person who governs under a prince must be wiser than the prince himself, who, governing for himself, has to render account only to God. But he who governs under another must not only render account to God, but also to the prince and to his subjects. Apart from the consultations all governors have to engage in, here in the Netherlands one has to gain everyone's goodwill, nobles as well as commons, for this country does not render the obedience which is due to a monarchy, nor to an oligarchic regime nor even to a republic. And a woman, especially a widow, finds this very difficult to cope with. For a woman, whatever her status, is never respected and feared like a man. If things went wrong in war, one is given the fault, for people hate to have to give from their property, as is necessary in such times. I could write a volume listing all the difficulties. I would not desire to go on governing, even if I were a man, for, as God is my witness, Governing is so abhorrent to me that, sooner than continue it, I would earn my living. Succeeding Mary of Hungary was her pious and powerful nephew Philip, soon to be Philip II, who was simultaneously King of Spain and 
master of vast swathes of South and Central American territory. As his uncle Ferdinand advanced the cause of the Habsburg branch in Vienna, Philip, the son of Charles V, persevered in Spain, and in time established a formidable legacy in the pantheon of Habsburg Spanish kings. Basically, several Philips came after him. During his reign, massive overseas expansion would further bolster the prestige and the coffers of Madrid, as the Philippines became Spanish and the New World became a hive of Spanish-owned gold and silver mines. Such increases in Spanish fortunes are also marked by the so-called Black Legend, which surrounded this very Catholic king. Excesses of the Inquisition on the continent and the atrocities committed against the natives in the New World formed the bulk of the accusations against Charles V's son, who also had the misfortune to launch a failed armada against England's Queen Elizabeth in 1588, an act which ensured that a costly war against England would continue for the rest of Philip II's reign. At the same time, though, the Battle of Lepanto in 1571 was viewed as a major naval victory against the otherwise unassailable powers of the Muslim Turk, who had seemed as insatiable in their quest for land as Hernando Cortes had been in his quest for gold. Dangerous though Philip II's shortcomings may have been, the greatest and most enduring challenge to the might of Spain began in the most prosperous portion of its European empire, lands once tied together by the marital opportunism of the Dukes of Burgundy, but which branded itself first as a Dutch revolt and, from 1581, a full-blown war of revolution and independence instigated by the sovereign Dutch Republic of the Seven United Provinces. From inauspicious beginnings, this revolt would grow and come under the direction of the House of Orange Nassau, a traditionally German-rooted noble house with long links of friendship to the Habsburgs. Far from a merely provincial affair, the Dutch would prove as industrious and resourceful at waging war against their former master as they had once been in merely supplementing his incomes. Operating on a pre-established naval record which grew up out of the superbly positioned trading hubs of the continent, the Dutch were able to utilise and build upon this expertise and experience to repeatedly frustrate and surprise the Spanish efforts to defeat and reassert their authority over these rebellious Dutch provinces. Its setting was distinctive, wrote the historian Herbert H. Rowan. The delta formed by the confluence of three rivers, the Rhine, Maas, or Meuse, and Scheldt. Here, trade and shipping, industry and agriculture, all developed in mutual encouragement to the highest level in northern Europe. Spain would thus not be fighting a backwater with few traditions of its own. Instead, it would have to pacify perhaps the most developed portion of Europe. When Philip II ordered the prominent William of Nassau's son captured in 1567, he likely believed that he had impressed upon that once loyal family the importance of their continued service and the dangers of rebellion. Yet such an act merely spurred William of Nassau, later known as William the Silent, into open rebellion the following year. The Eighty Years' War between Spain and its unruly Dutch subjects would not be satisfactorily concluded until early 1648, and by that point the revolt had torn the economic and military might, not to mention the reputation of Spain, completely asunder. 
It was the costliest conflict that Madrid engaged in during the period, and it had an additional distinction of being the longest continually fought war of the era as well. The Dutch in the north and the Flemish in the South Netherlands had endured their share of grievances, but as was usual during the period, religion sharpened all differences, and these differences had been legion to begin with. There was, what one historian has called, an incompatibility of temperament between Spanish and Dutch peoples. In his account of the Golden Age of Spain, the historian Orr Trevor Davies noted that the Netherlander was everything that the Spaniard was not. The Spaniard was not, and despised, everything that the Netherlander was. A traitor, a drunkard, a glutton, reputedly indifferent to religion, and worst of all, essentially, a civilian. From April 1572 to April 1607, and then, after the Twelve Years' Truce expired, from April 1621 to May 1648, Spain and its incurable Dutch disease consumed the resources and attentions of Philip's kingdom and that of his successors, while the conflict also played a pivotal role in external conflicts throughout its 80-year duration, most importantly for us, during the Thirty Years' War. Yet even before the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War, the Dutch Revolt consistently served as a way for the rivals of Spain to strike back at her, sometimes covertly, sometimes out in the open. When war broke out between England and Spain, it was through the Dutch Revolt that Queen Elizabeth invested most of her efforts. Just as Philip II sought to undermine the security of England by supporting the Irish rebels then in revolt against the English crown. Yet Philip II's continued intervention in the French Wars of Religion also permitted the Huguenot faction in France, led by the future King Henry IV of France, to ally and aid with the Protestant Dutch as a means to further harm Spain. In addition, the overstretched and overbearing nature of Philip II's designs on his European neighbours compelled both France and England to seek common ground and work diplomatically against him. Such outcomes seemed unimaginable by the time Philip II sent his most accomplished general, the Duke of Alva, northwards to deal with the treacherous Dutch. The invaluable incomes brought by the Dutch trading cities in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Antwerp and others were certainly worth fighting for, even if the challenge to Philip II's authority did not urgently have to be answered either way. Religious, as much as political concerns, had moved the Dutch to rebel, yet as a people they had always been suspicious of central authority, a suspicion which Charles V had overcome by treating them gently or appointing conscious regents in his place, such as his aunt or sister. Philip II, on the other hand, in the words of the historian Andrew Wheatcroft, treated them as he would Spaniards. His approach was invariably harsh. The Dutch, unaccustomed to the kind of direct rule planned by Philip, and concerned, rightly as it transpired, that Philip planned to expand the reaches of the Inquisition to extirpate Protestantism from the Dutch lands, determined to raise the standard of revolt. As a conflict of epic proportions, the Eighty Years' War remained in the background of much of Spain's dealings until 1648, and it formed a staple concern of its monarch's policies throughout the Thirty Years' War, to the point that the French would actually join the Dutch in 1635. 
As this and other conflicts were waged, Philip II's finances became more strained, and he filed for bankruptcy a total of four times during his reign, signifying that chronic financial problems lay deep within his administration, which only became worse as the years progressed. The conflict between Spain and the Dutch also contributed to the development of military theory and strategy, things we have seen in our military history episodes, as a necessity in the siege and the concentrated network of fortresses in the Netherlands region was made clear. As the revolt continued, the Dutch proved as diplomatically active as they were militarily defiant. Treaties of friendship were signed with England in 1585, France in 1589, the Palatinate in 1604, and Brandenburg in 1605. These agreements all increased the supply of both men and money to the rebels until the Spanish government was forced to accept that victory in the Low Countries was no longer attainable. This according to Geoffrey Parker. God, who has given me so many kingdoms, has not granted me a son fit to govern them. This, we are told, was how the ailing Philip II reacted to the sight of his son Philip III, gallivanting off to his latest pleasure party in this duke's house or that, all the while neglecting the total control over administration which had made Philip II's reign so formidable. Philip II had been, at his core, a micromanager, spending hours of the day at his desk, arranging and signing off on different reports. He had also been instrumental in shuffling resources and manpower to the different trouble spots of the sprawling Spanish Empire. Philip II had, in short, delayed the decline of Spain, which historians would later proclaim as inevitable. Philip had rejoiced when his son had been born in 1578, but he refrained from praising the Almighty too much because many of his children had died in their infancy. But Philip III survived, and although he never enjoyed as strong a constitution as his father, he did outlive the expectations of his father by reaching adolescence and giving Philip II hope that Spain would be in the hands of a king after all. But the elder Philip was quickly disappointed in his son's progress, or lack thereof. The fair-haired and short Philip Jr. may have resembled his father in a physical sense, and even retained the famed Habsburg jaw which was to so advertise the family's unfortunate penchant for inbreeding. Yet, short of these physical attributes and the inbuilt religious convictions, the son was very unlike the father. He lacked, in the words of Or Trevor Davies, his father's energy or dogged tenacity of purpose. Under no circumstances did the 20-year-old Philip III plan to confine himself to hours upon hours of lonely study in his office. That was surely what the administrators of the empire were for. Apparently disinterested in direct governance, Philip III's demeanour fit well with the recent rearrangement of government in the Spanish Netherlands. Now that this region was under the rule of his sister and brother-in-law, Philip III had fewer things to worry about, fewer letters to read and fewer people to see. For his kingdom to be complete, though, it would be necessary to pawn off his responsibilities in Spain itself, and this intention was suggested only hours after his father's death. The bag of dispatches were brought into the grieving Philip III, and looking upon them, he laid them down on a sideboard and explained that the Marquis of Denia would look through them in his place. This break with his father's policies 
had two immediate results. First of all, it detached Philip III from the day-to-day business of his empire, and second, it made the aforementioned Marquis of Denia the most important man in Spain. Denia was a charming, tactful man in his fifties by the time his chance came to capitalise upon the influence he had built up over the young Philip. His relationship with Philip III would be a demanding one, but it would also enrich Denia, soon recreated as the Duke of Lerma, beyond his wildest expectations. To obtain one's suit, recalled the Venetian ambassador to Spain, it is more important to be in favour with the Duke of Lerma than with the king himself, for it truly appears that the king has no other will than that of the duke. The judgment of Lerma normally attempts to balance the ambitious nobleman's chronic overspending and enthusiastic frivolity with the genuine success he enjoyed in foreign affairs. Even while he sent Spain further into the red with lavish parties and celebrations to mark marriages, births, or the mere arrival of new ambassadors, Lerma significantly lessened the danger posed by Spain's enemies by arriving at a peace with them. He had only just arrived on the scene when the peace with France was arranged, and while he made great efforts to damage England further in war, particularly in Ireland, in the end, Lerma certainly approved of the initiatives undertaken by the Archdukes in the Netherlands to arrive at a peace with Spain. The war with the Dutch, on the other hand, was a thankless, apparently endless conflict, which would not be so straightforwardly solved. It is one of the curiosities of history that the Eighty Years' War should have lasted as long as it did. It is easy to take for granted now the existence of the Dutch Republic, and to view the Spanish hold over what was then cast as the Duchy of Burgundy as somewhat nonsensical. Of course, the Dutch were bound to break free and to successfully remain free from their Spanish overlords. Yet, to view the Dutch revolt against the Spanish crown as such an inevitable success undermines the very characteristics which made that conflict so unique in early modern European history. Consider, for example, the fact that the Dutch rebels rose up against the most formidable power in the world in the mid-16th century, and that their people opposed the supremacy of Spain's most formidable king in Philip II. In the years that followed, there was no guarantee that Spanish might and money would not reclaim the lands which had been lost. On the contrary, it was only once the Dutch managed to take the fight to Spain in the 1580s that concerned support from allies in England and France poured into the country, which made the conflict a European war rather than a merely Spanish civil issue. And even with the support of foreign powers, Philip II's determination and singleness of purpose to crush the Dutch and bring them to heel never wavered, except perhaps in the final months of his life when he sought to completely recast Spain's relationship with the Netherlands by appointing the Archdukes. It was because Spain was pulled in so many directions that crushing the Dutch never became feasible. Wars with the Turk in the Mediterranean, with the French during their wars of religion, against the English and in North Italy all strained the resources of the Spanish crown, and this was before Philip II had died. In September 1598, after his father had passed on, Philip III inherited a Dutch war which had long ceased to bring returns. The people in the Spanish Netherlands, those loyal Spanish subjects, were battered, broke and greatly demoralised, even if their loyalty to Madrid did not falter at the turn of the century 
when it seemed that Spain had less to give them than before. The South Netherlandish people, writes the Dutch historian Peter Gale, were no more than the representatives of a defeated people, impoverished and exhausted. Twice had the South risked a revolt, both times it had been struck down. It had lost its economic prosperity and its bravest and most enterprising men, who were now stealing the strength of the North. It is not to be wondered that the idea of a new revolt could not inspire the Brussels states. The spring had been broken. Besides, their impotence was not merely moral, it was physical. Peter Gale goes on to cite a contemporary Dutch historian who wrote in the year 1614 that The states of Brabant, Flanders, etc., mastered by castles and garrisons, had no other means for promoting the peace than their humble remonstrances, setting out how needful peace was to them, wretchedly lamenting about the war and the unpaid soldiery. Philip III was as eager to see the war continue against the Dutch as his father had been, as much for the sake of his crown's reputation as because it was what Philip II had done. But Spain was simply drowning in problems, even while the Duke of Lerma maintained a facade of splendour and expense. Not even the coinage of Spain made sense anymore, and a declaration of bankruptcy would surely not be far in coming. Philip II had made four such declarations during his reign after all, so what chance did his wayward son have? An effort to bring the fight to the Dutch amidst their isolation, following the peace with France in 1598, delivered the Fortress 10 of Ostend to Spain six years later. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Thanks largely to the Herculean efforts of a new soldier of fortune, Ambrosio Spignola, 
Spaniolo was a Genoese nobleman of extraordinary talent and perception, and Philip III at least recognised the value of this man in his service in time to completely undercut the veneer of authority enjoyed by the archdukes, who were simply told that Spignola was to have full control over the war effort with the Dutch, and would even succeed to the position of governor of the Spanish Netherlands in the event that Archduke Albert died. As Peter Gale remarked, The childless archdukes were overshadowed by the brilliant stranger who enjoyed the confidence of Spain. Hardly the semblance of independence was left. Impressive as Ambrogio Spaniola's feats were, they could not achieve miracles. The tit-for-tat exchange of victories and defeats continued before and after Spaniola's appointment. On the 2nd of July 1600, the Battle of Newport saw the Dutch army led by Maurice of Nassau defeated Spanish counterparts, who were themselves led by the Archduke Albert. And although the Dutch didn't achieve their major objectives in the course of that campaign, Maurice's military acumen was undeniable. My intent, claimed Philip III, is to make myself Lord of the Sea. But the Dutch had other ideas, and they correctly perceived the damage which would be done to Spanish interests if the Spanish naval interests were undermined. On several occasions, Dutch privateers operated at immense cost to Spain, and when some of these operations achieved stunning successes, such as in 1603, when a Portuguese carrack was captured and its contents sold in auction to the delight and surprise of the Dutch at home, or in 1607, when a Dutch fleet destroyed 20 Spanish galleons off Gibraltar, or even later on in our story in 1629, when the Spanish silver fleet was captured and the Dutch used the 15 million florins captured in that exchange to fund a massive expansion of their armies, the Spanish were always left reeling and always without an answer. By the turn of the century, the war between Spain and the Dutch had been going on for more than 35 years, and contemporaries could be forgiven for thinking that it would not end in their lifetimes. For the most part, they were correct. The intractable differences between both sides can be boiled down to the galling fact, to those statesmen in The Hague at least, that Madrid still refused to countenance Dutch independence, and still refused to recognise Dutch sovereignty over the northern portion of the Netherlands which they governed. Until this impasse was breached, there was no chance of a peace being arrived at, let alone for normal relations between the two entities to flourish. The military stalemate and exhausting back and forth between the Spanish and Dutch in the first decade of the 17th century did give both sides pause for thought, though. Spaniola wanted peace, interestingly enough, in order to get back the large sums of money which he had advanced to Spain during the course of his command. The Dutch wanted peace because, over the course of nine summer campaigns, a few towns had been gained and lost, and all they had to show for it was a depleted treasury. We're going to continue on with the episode in a little bit, history friends, but before we do that, I wanted to let you know something very exciting. A few years ago, there was a podcast called The History of France in English, and it was done by a guy called Tom Vilmer. Long story short, Tom Vilmer went away for a while because he had to kick cancer's ass, but now he's back, and his podcast is back as well. A History of France in English is starting back up, but he's also releasing a new podcast called Grub, the Story of Food. 
which I'll talk about in a little bit, but first, a history of France in English. What's that all about? Well, as the name suggests, a history of France is the chronological story of the history of the evolution of France, starting in its prehistory and moving forward through the Stone Age and into the time of the Gauls and Celts and Romans and into the Franks and so on. Every 10 episodes or so, they do a deep dive on a topic. They just did a deep dive on a guy called Amboise Paré, who, if you weren't aware, was a surgeon who created the idea for CSI, but also included in each episode as a cocktail party slapdown, where Tom, accompanied by two other hosts, Sandra Richmond and Jennifer Regan, talk about a whole range of topics. Currently, they're working their way through that Ridiculous mythos of the French being nothing other than cheese-eating surrender monkeys when it comes to warfare. As Louis XIV will tell you, that's not exactly the case. So that's the history of France in English. It's restarting up again and I really would recommend you check it out. But what about Grub, the story of food? In this podcast, little episodes are released, digestible bites of information, telling a story of food that, well, you and I like to eat. Each episode has a theme, so, for example, the first episode is why the word grub is even used for food, which is pretty appropriate considering that's the name of the podcast. It includes information about humans eating bugs, which is gross, but also pretty interesting. Other topics include how an army travels on its stomach, lunch bag, letdowns, food in space, sandwiches, cheese, really missing Brie myself, what the Ice Age man ate before he died, and endless others. Both of these podcasts, A History of France in English and Grub, A Story of Food, can be found on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Tom was a friend of the podcast a long time ago, and when he went dark, I was worried that he'd given up on podcasting. It turns out, though, that Tom, like so many people that we might know or not know, just needed some time to get things together, kick cancer's ass, and come back with a focused vision for what he wanted his podcasting to be. So I hope you'll check his podcasts out in the relevant areas. And when you get there, tell them Zach Twomley sent you. But back to the story at hand. While it might have seemed as though the task for reconquest for Spain in the Netherlands was impossible, in the 1570s, when Philip II's star was on the ascendant and his power seemed omnipresent, the Spanish had made incredible progress and it nearly seemed as though the Dutch revolt itself was about to be snuffed out. But Spain, even at this stage, was not able to reconquer the territory captured by the Dutch rebels. There would not be time or money in the world enough to reduce by force the 24 towns which have rebelled in Holland if we are to spend as long in reducing each one of them as we have taken over similar ones so far. No treasury in the world would be equal to the cost of this war, wrote the Spanish commander-in-chief in October 1574. Geoffrey Parker summarises the problem with the early phases of the Eighty Years' War concisely. Problems which remained at the forefront of the Spanish dilemma for the duration of the conflict. Parker noted... The total cost of the Spanish army in the Netherlands between 1572 and 1576, a force of over 80,000 men at times, at least on paper, was estimated at 1.2 million florins every month. Spain simply could not provide such a sum, and while the Spanish field army was occupied in the sieges of Dutch towns, the rebels were free to attack and capture other strongholds in other areas. 
Moreover, this siege warfare, with the winter months spent in frozen trenches, three years running, was unpleasant for the troops. And the unpleasantness was exacerbated by the inability of the government to pay its soldiers for their heroic service. Inevitably, it produced discontent in the Spanish army, and both desertion and disobedience grew to alarming proportions. It should not come as too much of a surprise to note that from the 1570s, the costs of maintaining an army only increased, even as the Dutch improved their own defensive measures, grew more industrious with their assaults against Spanish interests, and developed their armed forces to respond to Spanish threats. Even while the Spanish recaptured a great deal of the South Netherland towns, including the predominantly Protestant Antwerp over 1584-85, the Spanish campaigns were more like a plodding, debilitating slog than a triumphant, lightning campaign. Even as Philip II engaged in these battles, he was also at war with England and France, until 1598 at least, which meant that fighting and beating the Dutch was even harder than it would otherwise have been. Supplies and resources earmarked for Flanders would often be diverted to Italy, the Pyrenees or the Rhine, and with the defeat of the Armada in 1588, Spanish naval prowess required rebuilding just at the point when Madrid could least afford such a project. With enemies all over the continent, it was hardly surprising that the once steady pace of the Netherlands' reconquest took a back seat to the more immediate opportunities in the French wars of religion or the more present threats from those rascally English pirates. Shorn of funds and attention, the Spanish initiative in the Netherlands receded into a stalemate, bookended by the unhappy and frequent circumstances of underpaid and demoralised Spanish soldiers in Flanders, agitating and chafing from lack of pay, which eroded discipline and military initiative still further in the region. The lack of a definite victory in Flanders continued, despite the fact that Spain was expending a small fortune paying the army there. Between 1580-84, over 17 million florins was sent to the Spanish Netherlands. Between 1585-89, almost 53 million. Between 1590-94, nearly 61 million. And between 1595-99, nearly 79 million. Time and again other concerns subordinated the Netherlands theatre and successive strategies effectively kicked the Dutch can down the road. But that didn't stop, as we can clearly see, the Spanish spending millions trying to quash that revolt. The legacies of the past and of Spain's costly commitments contributed to the uninspiring condition of the Spanish Netherlands at the turn of the century. Bankruptcy, mutiny, distraction and other wars had pulled Spain in too many directions to count. And the Dutch had tenaciously ensured that this would be the case, maintaining an active diplomatic relationship with the French, the English and even the Ottoman Turks in order to depress the Spanish efforts against them and dilute Spanish solvency in the process. Even with Ambrosio Spagnola's initiative in taking Ostend or with Maurice of Nassau's efforts to resume the Dutch conquest of Flanders, the writing was on the wall. Neither side could defeat the other, neither side could continue, and neither side remembered the beginning of the conflict. It had always been a staple fact of European relations, so long had the struggle been in play. The Dutch revolt had always been a convenient means through which Spain's rivals could damage its integrity. Indeed, even while Henry IV of France had made his peace in 1598, he continued to support and supply the Dutch against the Habsburgs.
If there was to be any respite, it would have to be arrived at through diplomacy, rather than following a shattering victory on land or sea, which could not be achieved. The pertinent questions were as follows. Did the Spanish view their stability and prosperity more than they valued their declared right to rule over the Dutch? Would they sacrifice their semblance of authority over the Dutch for the sake of a healthy balance sheet, or at least a healthier balance sheet? Would they lose face internationally in order to gain domestically? By 1607, it was apparent that these questions could not be ignored any longer. While the ground had been laid by officials hailing from Brabant and Flanders, the actual peace negotiations were clearly in the hands of Madrid. While Philip III's government had authorised a measure of independent action, the negotiation of a truce with the Dutch and all that implied was too significant an activity to leave in dreary possession of the Spanish Netherlanders, and certainly not the Archdukes. Ambrosio Spignola would be appointed plenipotentiary and was granted the authority to speak for Madrid and the Archdukes. By doing so, Philip III undermined his sister once more, and there was nothing she could do about it. The terms of the peace were already known, insofar as it was known what the Dutch wanted and what the Spanish would reasonably be expected to give. Dutch sovereignty would be recognised as per the terms of this truce, so that's a further knock against the Peace of Westphalia, where people claim in 1648 the Spanish finally recognised the Dutch as an independent state. But sovereignty was not the only issue at stake. Extensive trading rights in the Indies were up for grabs, and the Dutch refused to countenance any peace arrangement which would neglect their rights in that theatre. Differences within the Dutch provinces shone several unflattering lights upon the disagreements inherent within Dutch society. There was a war party, led by Maurice of Orange, and a peace party, led by Johan van Oldenbarnveldt a veteran Dutch statesman of the old school who was in his 60s at this point when his political career was reaching its peak. Yet even through these two camps there were ideological differences. Some wished to proselytise to the South Netherlanders and to convert them to Protestantism. Others saw the conflict with Spain in uncompromising terms. The Union of Utrecht, declared in 1580, had included all of the Netherlands, North and South, and by extension, a peace with Spain recognised the Spanish hold on half of the territory which the Dutch had once proclaimed to be free. Did this represent a defeat of the Dutch Revolution? Just as it was not possible for the Spanish to reconquer the North, so too was it impossible, at least at this juncture, for the Dutch to move seamlessly into union with the Spanish Netherlands. While the region had been battered and sucked dry over the years, the core loyalty to the Spanish crown was immovable unless the Dutch managed to seriously up the ante in military matters. Contrary to what the initial opening moves of a campaign in Empire Total War might indicate, conquering the Spanish Netherlands was not as easy as simply marching an army into Brussels. The region was as dense in population and therefore in towns as the north, if not more so since agriculture flourished in the Dutch Netherlands. Flanders was better equipped for defence, and the largely Catholic population of Brabant and the Walloon regions were not about to rely on the good Protestant graces of their Dutch neighbours in the name of a few freedoms. The Spanish had in fact sought to acquire guarantees from the Dutch that freedom of worship for Catholics would be allowed in their seven provinces, 
but the Dutch had said that internal matters were none of their business. Quarrels between the peace and war party, between the religiously motivated and the realistic, dragged on over 1608, and for many, including Maurice of Orange, it became difficult to imagine what a peaceable Dutch Republic would actually look like. Maurice, as stadtholder and thus military leader of five of the seven provinces, was highly sensitive to the idea that once the conflict had ended and the threat from Spain receded, the Dutch people wouldn't need him to defend their lands any longer, and thus his influence would be lost and gobbled up by the civilian Olden Barnveld. The conflict between Maurice and Olden Barnveld would reach its culmination just at the wrong time in European developments, but for now, the matter was greatly aided by the pressure of the English and French, who both played roles in inducing both sides back to the negotiating table. The idea of arrest and an end to fighting had already found firm adherence in the key Dutch towns of Amsterdam, Utrecht and Rotterdam, and with the province of Zeeland following that of Holland, the smaller provinces were then led to agree also. By the end of 1608, Maurice of Nassau was no longer asking for a continuation of the war. He had sensed which way the wind was blowing, and rather than sacrifice his own popularity by going against the grain, he determined to risk the uncertainty by agreeing to a peace with a power which he had only ever known as a foe. With the country therefore united behind peace, the diplomats under French service sought to further negotiations. By spring 1609, the Dutch and Spanish war was over, for now. On every level, the unlikely triumph of the Dutch was an astonishing feat. Regardless of the circumstances, of the distractions endured by Spain, or her difficulties in meeting so many enemies at once, this small corner of the continent had managed to resist and then beat back and then actively wound Madrid for long enough that the proud Spanish Empire was forced to make peace. It was indeed more pressing for Spain rather than the Dutch that peace be signed, and this was tacitly acknowledged by the fact that the Archdukes were permitted to give in to every Dutch demand. Protection for Catholic subjects in the Dutch Republic? Ignored. Dutch access to the Indies trade network? Technically permitted. Recognition of Dutch sovereignty? Granted. To the South Netherlanders, in Peter Gale's words, The treaty gave nothing but twelve years of rest. How much more did it give to the northern provinces? Peace had arrived in Europe, but it was recognised as temporary when it was signed on the 9th of April 1609. Twelve years' worth of truce was all that the treaty allowed for, and then the implication was the conflict would be back on in earnest. Was this period of peace thus a mere opportunity to prepare for war again, or was it something more, and perhaps more sinister than that? As we'll see in later episodes, now that the Spanish enemy had been defeated, the Dutch, increased in pride and power by their victories, turned against each other, as every division which had been papered over in the name of the common good during wartime made itself felt and heads began to roll. Next time, we'll be turning our attention to the other related studies of the Thirty Years' War, beginning with the British who had recently been united with Scotland in a personal union for the first time. How would James the First and Sixth fare in this role, and what did he think 
of the unfolding events taking place on the continent. I hope you'll join me next time, that is two weeks time, because we're finishing up with our weekly schedule, unfortunately, as January has given way to February, but I'll see you all in two weeks time. We will be able to delve into yet another delicious chapter of this awful conflict. But until then, my name is Zach. This has been episode 5 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening to this show and supporting it, history friends, patrons and PhD pals. You mean so much to me and I really appreciate you. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 